But we'll continue through our, our study through the book of Romans chapter 4. And I just want to read basically verses 1 through 8 uh, this morning. And then we'll pick up right there in verse 6 where we left off last time after a little review. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And this will be our text for today, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're in a series called Accounted as Righteousness in Romans chapter 4 here. And the one thing that we've been looking at through the book of Romans as we've gone through this, uh, basically, is, is that we're all guilty before God. We're all guilty before God. From Adam and Eve, who sinned in the garden when they tried to hide themselves from God because of their sin. That's what sin does. That's what guilt does. Um, Guilt basically makes slaves of all of us if we allow it to. It alienates us from one another. Uh, We're afraid if we're doing something wrong, somehow we feel guilty, maybe others will find out and then we'll be condemned. And, And so we Instead of running to the body of Christ or running even to God, we tend to isolate ourselves from the body of Christ. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the right thing to do. But because we've all sinned and because God knows all of our sins, stop and think about that. God knows all of your sins. Not just the big ones. He knows all of them. Real life. He sees them. People often speak about being accountable, how they need accountability, and we all need, to some degree, accountability. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to overlook the idea that, first of all, we're accountable to God, right? We're accountable to our Heavenly Father for the way we live, for the way we think, for what we say, for what we do, 24-7, not just when we're meeting in our accountability group. And sometimes we forget that. But in our last study, we saw how Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, basically, was justified by what? By faith. By faith alone. And we looked at that in in detail. That he was justified before God by faith alone, not by his works. And we defined justification as basically what it means is to be declared righteous by God. Picture yourself in a courtroom, and you're guilty, and you get up to the, the, before the judge, and you, you know you're guilty. But somehow, 
they render you not guilty and the gavel comes down. From then on, you're not guilty. Even though maybe you were. (laughs) In the eyes of the law, you're not guilty. It's to be acquitted from all of our sins by God's judicial decree. See, God is the one who declares us not guilty. God is the one that declares us righteous. We don't declare ourselves righteous. And so when he explains this in verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4, that's why he says there in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And we talked about the idea when you work a 40-hour week, you don't bow down and and kiss your, your boss's ring and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, when he gives you the paycheck. You don't do that. Why? Because you earned it. That's rightfully yours. And that's what those verses say. What is due? If you're going to work for your salvation, then God owes you something. But it says in verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And that's what the whole chapter really deals with in Romans 4. It deals with Abraham being an example of someone who lived by faith and was declared righteous by God, by faith, not by his works. And we saw last week why Paul chose Abraham. You can listen to the message to get all that, but Abraham really is Paul's greatest illustration for someone who is justified by faith. Now, he presented the doctrine when we were back in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 to 31. Basically, he he goes over and over and over the, the doctrine of justification by faith. And we looked at that. And so now he gets into Romans 4 and he says, Okay, I've been teaching you all this theology. I've given you all these words. Now I want to give you a living, breathing example, an illustration. And so he chooses Abraham. Because he knows they're about ready to say, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying everybody is unrighteous. And the Jews did not consider Abraham to be unrighteous. So they were going to come after Paul's teaching. And so he kind of beats him to the punch, if you will. So who is Abraham or Abram as he was originally named by God? Abram means exalted father. That's what it means in the original language. And then God all of a sudden changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And the reason he did that is because he had given him that promise. He gave him a promise that was basically, you might say, twofold. It was physically a promise, and it was also spiritually a promise. He said physically, back in Genesis 17, verses 1 to 8, He said, from from your loins, Abraham, there's going to come multitudes of people. A lot of people. You have to understand, the Arab, the Jews, they all descended from Abraham. That's where they came from. Genesis 17, verses 1 to 8 talks about that. And he talks about how Abraham will produce generations of people. The scriptures even describe it as the sand on the seashore or the stars of the heaven. Have you ever gone down to the, 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 the seashore and try to count grains of sand? Good luck. Not going to happen. 
Or on a starry night, out in the country, you look up and you see star after star after star, and the more you count, the more you see. It's incredible. But it wasn't just physically this blessing, this promise that God gave Abraham, because he's also our father of the faith, you might say, spiritually. He was really a pattern in the Old Testament by those who put their faith in God as a pattern. And so he wants us to understand that. If you turn over to Galatians, you can see this very clearly. Galatians chapter 3, we can see how Abraham was really a pattern from the Old Testament for those who want to live by faith, want to know God through faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses starting in verse 6 there. Galatians 3, 6. This is Paul writing this letter as well. But he says there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted or accounted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So it wasn't just a promise physically, you're going to have lots of descendants, but you're also going to have lots of descendants spiritually. Millions are going to follow his example of living by faith of knowing God through faith. And you wonder, well, what made Abraham such a man of faith? We're not going to get into all the details. We're not doing a character study on Abraham, but just three things very quickly. First of all, Abraham believed God for a new country. I mean, could you imagine, Mike, if God said, hey, I want you to uh, quit your job (laughs) and uh, uh, take your family somewhere. Are you willing to go? Your first question would be, where? (laughs) Right? Well, Abraham didn't know. God said, you're going to go somewhere, and I'm going to tell you where. I'm going to give you a new country. And he left the city of Ur, and he journeyed to Canaan, but he really didn't know where he was supposed to end up. It was a step of faith. That takes a lot of faith. I mean, think about it. When you're moving, when you're in the midst of moving, you're packing that truck. You know, the last thing you want to do is, is move twice. Right? You don't want to move somewhere and then have to move again in a couple weeks. But think if you had nowhere to go when you're moving. How unnerving that would be. Abraham did that and he did it by faith. Secondly, Abraham believed God for a child when he was rather up in age, you might say. He was old. And God said, no, you're going to have a child. And you know what? God provided Isaac. Abraham believed God. Even though physically it was probably impossible at that point in his life. He knew God was a God who wouldn't go back on his promise. A God who was true. I mean, aren't you glad we serve a God of truth? Aren't, we, aren't you glad we serve a God who doesn't say one thing one day and another thing the next day? That his word upholds its truth throughout the ages? So he believed God for a new country. He believed God for a child. And thirdly... He also believed God for a redeemer. He really did. He believed that somehow God was going to send someone 
as a savior. We look back today, we live in the church age, we look back to the cross, we look back to Christ, and it kind of all makes sense. Well, imagine yourself being Abraham looking forward. You don't have everything worked out for you. How much more faith is that going to take? Abraham didn't know the Redeemer's name. He didn't know all the historical information that we know. But he did look for a Redeemer. That's very clear. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Jump down to verse 16. It's kind of interesting how Paul puts this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 3, or verse 16 of chapter 3 of Galatians, he says, Now the promises were made to who? Abraham and to his offspring. Notice it's singular. Or to his seed. Singular. It does not say, the verse says, and to offsprings, referring to many. But referring to one. And to your offspring. And he tells us who that offspring is. Who is it? Christ. He looked forward to a redeemer. When the Lord gave a promise to Abraham, he didn't say to your many seeds. He didn't say to your many offsprings. But he promised one seed. And Abraham must have understood, based on what we're told here in Galatians, that not just many was the key of the promise, but there would be one, there would be a Christ, there would be a Savior. Turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We know this is the chapter of faith in the Bible. Hebrews, chapter 11. And the reason I'm going over this is because a lot of times people think that somehow in the Old Testament, people were saved differently than what we are saved today. They think that maybe they were saved by all these sacrifices they did. No, they weren't. Or maybe they had to keep the law. No, they couldn't. That couldn't save them. How were they saved? They were saved by faith. Look at verse 13. Hebrews 11, verse 13. It says, all the... These all died in faith, not having, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So who is all these? Well, Abraham is one of them. If you look up above, that's who he's referring to. All these died in faith. And all these not having received the things promised. So if God was just referring to Isaac when he promised, made these promises to Abraham, did Abraham see Isaac? Yeah, right? He definitely saw him. He had a relationship with him. It was his son. So it doesn't refer to Isaac. It refers to Christ. The single seed that God said Abraham would have was someone other than Isaac. And that's why he said that he died in Hebrews here. It says he died not having seen the promise fulfilled. Look at verse 17. By faith, Hebrews eleven seventeen, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son. 
of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So it says there, basically, that he knew somehow that the seed was not Isaac, but the seed was going to come through the generation of Isaac. And then verse uh, 19, he considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, it's interesting when you read that because you think, oh, he's, he's talking about Isaac. He's talking about Isaac. Well, he is, but he's also referring to Christ. It's very possible that Abraham was aware that when this seed would come, somehow God was going to raise him back up from the dead. Look over at John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, and Jesus kind of sums it up for us here. John 8, 56. John 8, verse 56. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews of his day. John 8, verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see whose day? My day, he says. He saw it and was glad. Whose day? Abraham not only believed God for a new country, he not only believed God for a new son, but he also believed God for a redeemer. That's referring to Christ. His day. That's Jesus speaking. And so it becomes a pattern. And so Paul wants us to understand why he's using Abraham as an illustration here. Because he was the father of the faith. He's a pattern of someone who lives by faith. When the promise of his son came to Abraham, he believed beyond even his physical son. Maybe he understood that in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head. Somehow he understood all that. He lived and he died in faith. And so Paul uses him as a model, as an illustration. And he's the perfect illustration to use. Because Paul's mainly speaking to Jews here. Now, last time we were together, we saw that God does not justify. He doesn't declare someone righteous because they're just a nice guy. Because maybe they're a good dad, or they go to church, or they do this, or they do that, or they work hard, they try to do their best. That's not the basis upon which God justifies us. He does not justify the one whose good works outweigh his bad. That's how we think. We think somehow that in life, if we do more good works than bad works, God has to bless us. I hear from people all the time. Start coming to church, and wow, you know, going through a hard time, and boy, I just, you know, lost my job and lost my family. I thought maybe I maybe need to come to church. I often want to say, why are you coming to church? You think based on you just coming to church that somehow God now is 
required to bless you? See, we've got we to gotta, we gotta break out of that kind of thinking in our Christianity even. How many times are we riddled with guilt when we don't, you know, get through the devotion for the day or whatever? I'm the kind of person who likes to do everything like this, you know. So even reading the daily bread, you know, if I get behind a day or something, you know, I can't just go on to the next day. I've got to go back and catch up, you know, before I can even focus on what I'm reading. That's so silly. It's a silly mindset. But that's how so many of us think. That's not how God justifies. He justifies the ungodly sinner who has faith in Jesus. That's how he justifies. See, the Jews are looking at Abraham and they're thinking, well, he was a pretty good guy. He wasn't a bad guy. And so at this point in time, Paul says, okay, I'm going to give you another illustration. I'm going to give you an illustration that maybe you can understand a little more. Because maybe they're thinking somehow Abraham was justified by his good works, even though he just taught them that they, he wasn't. And so Paul brings in another witness into the courtroom. He brings in King David. And you know who King David is. The Jews recognize King David as a, as a great man. He was the best of Israel's kings. But everybody knew about King David. Everybody knew that even though he was probably the best king that there was, he also sinned greatly. We know the story. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he tried to cover it up when she got pregnant. Basically, she had her husband murdered. Doesn't sound like, you know, you're kind of go-to-church kind of guy. I mean, this sounds like a pretty bad dude. So Paul brings David in as a second witness to prove that God justifies not just the righteous. God justifies sinners, of which we are all one. And he justifies them by faith apart from any good works. And so, in verses 7 and 8, you see in your Bible, that's a quote from the Old Testament. It's taken out of Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2. It says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, this all ties in. When, when Abraham believed God and it was, it was credited to him, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Or we read that in, in, uh, uh, here in, in the psalm as well. And that's what that word is there at the end, verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's the same Greek word. Logizomai. It means you, you take something into account. Or in this case, you don't take it into account. It's an accounting term. It means to enter something into a ledger. In Abraham's case... Listen, God entered into the asset column righteousness, even though he had none. Because it's by grace. He literally wrote it into that column. In David's case, negatively, God did not enter into the liabilities column. Sin. 
See, grace has two sides. It's, it's what it gives and it's what it also withholds. We're blessed with God's, God declaring us righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, but we're also blessed because he doesn't take into consideration our sinfulness. So in this case, he didn't credit David's sins against him. It's like having a charge card and ringing up the, you know, the, the, the credit. You're at your balance, your limit, maxed out. You think, well, you know, before I use this again, I better call and see. You call or you go online and you look and it says zero. (laughs) Wait a minute, I know there's a couple thousand dollars on there. What's going on? Doesn't make any sense. All that stuff I bought is not on my card. What's going on? There must be an error somewhere. What if you called the credit card company and they said, oh, no, no, you had a $5,000 limit, you know, statement, you know, there's, there's debt on your card, but every couple of years we just kind of pick somebody random and we forgive your debt. Wouldn't that be a nice gift to get? That's what God does for us. He didn't credit David's sin against him. See, that's why Paul in verse 6, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. From the negative end, David's looking at this going, Man, I do not deserve this because this is what I did. And so we see in these verses today the supreme blessing of God forgiving all your sins. It comes through faith apart from any works. And we looked at that last week. And that goes against our grain because instinctively we want good people to go to heaven. Someone asked me this week, oh, you know, the nun that you were using as an example last week, was that Mother Teresa? And I said, well, no, it wasn't. I mean, but it applies to Mother Teresa. In other words, if Mother Teresa is in heaven, the only way she's in heaven is because she saw herself as an undeserving sinner and she fled to the cross of Christ. doesn't matter what she did in her life, even though she did a lot of good things. And along the same lines, there could be a mass murderer who is in heaven today. And he's there because he saw himself as an undeserving sinner and he fled to the cross of Christ God only justifies ungodly people, of which we are all ungodly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for us, that just doesn't do well in our logic. We have a hard time understanding that. To give you an illustration from Scripture, look at at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. This is a difficult parable that Jesus taught. We know it is the laborers in the vineyard. Because all we understand is reward and debt. We understand pay and wages. It's hard for us to grasp grace, that it's free, that it's undeserved. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus starts a parable. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. About six o'clock in the morning. Began his day. 
went out. He had to get a crew together to help him farm his goods. Verse 2, it says, After agreeing with the laborers, notice that he agreed with the laborers, for a denarius, a day, which was the going rate for a day laborer, he sent them out into his vineyard. And then it says, going on a little later on in the day, going on about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So he takes one group out to this field, puts them to work, says, I'll pay you a denarius a day. Great, good, glad to have it. He goes back into town, he sees other people standing around. Hey, you need a job? Yeah, okay. You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. Notice he says that doesn't say it's a denarius. He doesn't say anything. He says, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll make it right. So they went out, verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So three-hour segments here. He goes out and he did the same. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, one hour before quitting time, He went out and he found others standing around. Probably got word. Hey, this guy's hiring. Go tell Freddie. Go tell my friend back at the home. You know, get him out here. If we're standing around, he'll hire us. So more people kept on coming out. And he says, why do you stand here? Idle all day. Verse 7, they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, well, you go into the vineyard too. I'm not going to use that for an excuse. I'll hire you right now. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, go call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So the guys that got hired at 11 o'clock were the first to get paid. I mean, you can imagine they're probably not even... Bush, you know, they've just been out there an hour. <laughs> they're probably thinking, ah, whatever we get is good. Not a big deal. Everybody else, they're all sweaty and tired from 12 hours in the fields. And they're watching this thing play out. Verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came up, each of them received a denarius. Hmm. I wonder how many of them there were. I wonder how, how long it took for word. I mean, obviously, he hired a lot of people. So you can imagine them all on the line waiting to go up to the foreman. The guy's paying them. Probably the guys in the, you know, right behind them, you know, hey, what'd you get? What'd you get? Oh, I got a various. Well, that, that works its way back to the end of the line. To the guys that have been out there 12 hours that agreed to work a full day's wage for a denarius. I mean, can you imagine? Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, remember they were out there at 6 in the morning. They thought, hey, if these guys got a denarius, we're, we're definitely going to get more than that because we've been out there so, so much longer. But each of them also received a denarius. Look, and on receiving it, what did they do? 
they grumbled at the master of the house. They said, hey, bud, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat and done most of the work. What gives? Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, I like this, friend. (laughs) Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose (laughs) with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What's that saying? That's saying that, you know what? It's not based on on what you're doing as far as what you get at the end. It's talking about God's grace. That, That grace that saved you. No matter what your background, you could have been the worst person in the world. I don't know what your background is. Or you could have been Mr. Religious, gone to church every day. I don't know. But the same grace, the same benefits of that grace on the people who who just kind of live a life of debauchery and get saved on their deathbed (laughs) versus the person that, you know, follows Christ from a little kid and does everything right all of his life. That same grace is equally bestowed on everybody. That's hard. That's hard for us to understand. But that's how grace works. It's not given out. It's not dispensed according to merit. He gives it freely, the scripture says, to whom he chooses. Even in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, it says... It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. See, if you read the Bible correctly, you have to believe in a God-centered salvation. It's not a man-centered salvation. The point that Paul drives home here is that chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, he's basically condemning everybody. He says everybody is under sin. We're all born in sin. The pagans who don't even know God, they're obviously under sin. The religious people, like the Jews, they're they're under sin, just like the pagans. All deserve God's judgment, and all are desperately in need of His grace. Remember, his grace is unmerited favor. It's favor that he dishes out as he wills. Not based on who you are, how talented you are, or how good you are. See, that's the good news of the gospel, beloved. The good news of the gospel is is that God freely justifies, he freely pardons every sinner who does not work. But believes in Jesus as a 
propitiation for his sins. So Paul here is is reinforcing the point that David made in Psalm 32. The emphasis basically is on blessing, the blessing of God's gracious forgiveness. First in your outline there, you see the greatest blessing of all is to have God forgive all your sins. I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing? That God forgave all your sins when you came to him in need of a Savior? He just didn't say, oh, well, I'll forgive up to this point, and from here on, you're on your own. No. We'd all be lost if that was the case. See, to appreciate the blessing of forgiveness, I think we have to understand a couple things. We must feel the heavy burden of our guilt. We have to understand what it means to feel guilt. Today, people don't like to feel guilt anymore. Read a quote from the Apple CEO, Cook, the other day, talking about his homosexuality and how he thanks God every day for that gift. I thought, man, fella, I don't know what you're reading. I don't know who's putting stuff in your brain, but it's not good. I thought, what a sad state of affairs. And to say so pridefully, without shame, with no guilt, that's our society. And ever since the fall, sinners have instinctively responded to their guilt. How? By blaming others. That's who, he's, he's blaming God. He said, hey, thanks God for this. From the very beginning, God confronted Adam. What did he do? He blamed his wife. Genesis 3.12. The woman you have given me, she gave me from the tree. Well, yeah, I ate, but what's he saying? Hey, it's her fault. It's not my fault. I'm not guilty. But the funny thing is, even when you blame others, when you are guilty, it doesn't alleviate the guilt. I think eventually they have a seared conscience. Conscience that just can't deal with it. They feel no guilt. That's the society we live in. They make light of it. I think it's important that when David suppressed his guilt over his sin with Bathsheba, probably about a year before the prophet Nathan came, cornered him, told him a story, and then basically told him, you're the guy in the story, David. I know what's going on. You're guilty. One commentator wrote, a man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. Be sick before he will seek a physician. Be in prison before he will seek for a pardon. A sinner must be cast down, confounded, condemned, a castaway, lost in himself before he will look about for a savior. J.C. Ryle says this, never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as a Savior until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. Or C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before God 
before his God convicted and condemned with the rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. So for God's blessing of forgiving all of our sins, for that to be a supreme blessing for us as individuals, you have to come to the extent of feeling that heavy burden of your guilt before him. Secondly, forgiveness there be is the greatest of all blessings. That's why he says, blessed is the man. It it means happy. We looked at this on Wednesday nights when we were studying through Psalms. The word blessed, basically, you can put it happy right in there. That's what it means to be happy. John Piper says this, when the Lord does not take into account of a sin in his book, he defines it as this, a condition in which you are deeply secure and content and happy in God. See, we think, when I look at these people that have all this stuff, all this money, all this material wealth, I stopped looking at the magazines at the coffee shop, you know, the real estate things they put out, or the post, you know, the little newspaper that goes around. It's just a big real estate thing, basically. You got all these houses. I used to look through there. Man, I get depressed looking through there, man. These are mansions. Ken, I don't know how you clean some of these places, man. I just, I mean, I would be depressed, you know. They, these people are living in, in opulent splendor. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And you're thinking, wow, if I only had, no. <laughs> it's not going to make you happy. Because the world's richest beloved could disappear just like that. And you know what? When you have something like that, there's a whole lot of truth to the idea of caring about what you have. I remember talking to somebody when the stock market was busting and everybody's freaking out and I don't care. <laughs> I ain't got nothing in the stock market. I don't have nothing to lose. You know? And that that's just, you know, you might say, well, that's kind of a weird uh, way to look at it, but you know what? It's very freeing. Very freeing. I mean, what a great feeling when it comes to our sin to know that the burden of guilt is gone forever. Isn't that a blessing? We have to understand that when God forgives all of our sin, it does not mean that he removes all temporary consequences of our sin. There's a lot of believers that have had a lot of sins forgiven, but boy, are they bearing the consequences of the life they lived before they came to Christ. They're bearing the consequences big time. See, God forgave David, didn't he? But he did ordain some of those severe consequences on David and on his family. Read about it in 2 Samuel 12. For the rest of his life, he had to deal with it. I think sometimes God graciously softens the consequences, but at other times he really uses them to teach us to hate our sin all the more. See, just because we're going through a hard time, just because we experience difficult trials does not mean that God has not forgiven us. In fact, it's one evidence that he has forgiven us, that he disciplines us, that he loves us.
You hear this a lot too. I mean, just to kind of go down a little trail here in churches and among Christian people, Christian authors. Well, you know what you have to do? You, you just, you really just need to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. You ever hear that? I've heard that till I'm red in the face. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. You don't find that taught anywhere in Scripture. That you have to forgive yourself? The Bible says that if we sin, we must seek, first of all, God's forgiveness. And if we sin against another brother, sister, somebody else, we need to seek forgiveness from them. But not once do you find anywhere that you should forgive yourself. If others have wronged us, we should forgive them. But the Bible never talks about forgiving yourself. You need to receive God's forgiveness. That's the forgiveness that will heal the guilt. That's the forgiveness that will heal the pain. I want to ask you this morning, have you experienced that blessing beyond all blessings? Do you know that God has forgiven all of your sins? Are you sure that he will not take them into account on the day of judgment when you stand before him? Secondly, justification means, that's what we're talking about here, justification, God declaring us righteous. Justification means that God credits Christ's righteousness to the guilty sinner and forgives all of his sins apart from any works. John Calvin summed up the understanding of justification this way, that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Justification means that God credits Christ's righteousness to the guilty sinner. He gives you something you don't deserve. Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It means to make righteous. To infuse righteousness into the sinner. If you cook it all, sometimes you take certain spices or fruits or whatever, and you can you can infuse them into whatever meat you're cooking. That's what God does through Christ for us. Because Christ paid the penalty that our sin deserved, God can both just be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. That's what it tells us. Secondly, justification means that God forgives all of the guilty sinner's sins. The positive aspect, God declares the sinner righteous by crediting to his account the very righteousness of Christ. Negatively, God does not credit to the sinner's account his own sins. And Paul uses here kind of three phrases... Verse 7, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. The word forgive means to send away, to bury the depth of the sea. It's used sometimes of, of divorce, which means a permanent sending away of one's spouse. It was used of forgiving a debt. The books were wiped clean. In the Old Testament, it was used of the Day of Atonement. When he had two male goats that were selected and the high, priest, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of one goat and they would call that goat the scapegoat. And as he did that, he would confess the sins of the people. And then that goat was sent away. 
into the wilderness, taking away the sins of the people. It was an illustration. See, forgiveness means that God has sent away all of our sins. They're removed from us. Secondly, it says there, blessed are those whose sins have been covered. The word covered is used only here in the New Testament and is quoted from Psalm 32.1. And it also refers to that day of atonement when the, the priest took the blood of the other goat and he actually sprinkled it on the mercy seat in the temple on the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark contained the Ten Commandments which God's people all have broken. And the blood of the innocent victim of that goat covered the sins of the people. It was an illustration, once again, of Christ's coming sacrifice. And then thirdly, here in verse 8, he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's used 11 times in this chapter, translated as credited or credits. He takes the debt of our sin off the books. He wipes the slate clean. We need to understand what Romans 8.1 says in our own faith, in our own living daily as we live our Christian lives. Romans 8.1 says, therefore there is now what? No condemnation. None for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a little sliver of condemnation. See, David was already a justified man when he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Psalm 32 shows that God's crediting of righteousness and forgiving of his sins is not revoked by a believer's sins. Aren't you, isn't that a blessing? I mean, aren't you glad that when you're saved, you're saved forever? It's not conditional. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on how good of a Christian you are. We have to understand that God disciplines us for our sins. He does. Because He doesn't remove all the consequences of our sins, but He does forgive them. And we will not incur the wrath of God. We have to strike from our minds the idea that when we do something bad, God is up there with a big hammer ready to hit us. That's not the God we serve, beloved. God is a loving Father. When we do something wrong or when we're going down the wrong path, He comes alongside of us and He guides us back. And trust me, He'll do whatever it takes to get us back. Because we're His. Just like you would do with your own child. We must submit to His discipline, but we do not need to fear His condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Sometimes I hear Christians say, well, I just think God is punishing me. I'm thinking, where are you getting that from? Scripture doesn't allow for that. If you're a child of God, if you're you're a son of the king, there's no punishment in the plan. There's discipline, but there's no punishment. Because there's no condemnation on those that are in Christ Jesus Thirdly, justification means that God credits Christ's righteousness to the guilty sinner and forgives all of his sins apart from any works. I know a lot of this sounds repetitive, but it's really not. Verse 6, 
Paul says David speaks of blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. If it's apart from works, then how is it done? Paul says the ungodly person's faith in Christ is credited as righteousness. We have to remember what we learned a couple weeks ago that you know, it's, not a, it's not a swap. You're not swapping your faith for Christ's righteousness. That's not how this works. Our faith is a means to the righteousness of God. It's very important you understand that. You hear all the time, well, you just have to have more faith. That's like saying, well, you just got to have more love. If you're a beloved here today and you're, you're in Christ, you know what? The Bible says that the, 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 the love of Christ is shed abroad in your heart. You can't get any more love than that. We need to stop praying for some of these things that we already possess and start using the things that we already possess for the glory of God. Amen? If faith somehow merited God's favor, then grace would, be un, would not be undeserved. Faith lays hold of what Christ did for us on the cross. By faith, we believe that. And last point here, three, to obtain this blessing, we must cease from our own works and believe in God's provision in Christ. That brings us to our communion table. We saw in verse five, the only one God justifies is the one who does not work. Apart from works, he says. If you're trusting in any sense of good works for your salvation, you're really excluding yourself from God crediting Christ's righteousness to your account. Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 4, God credits righteousness apart from works. We come to Christ in repentance. That's the other thing you hear a lot of Christians say, well, they just need to repent. They can't repent until God grants them repentance. That's what the Bible teaches. If you're trusting in your repentance, you're excluding yourself from the blessing of forgiveness. You must believe in Christ. If you're trusting in your faith, you're excluding yourself from God's forgiveness. You must believe in Christ, in Christ alone. Some years ago, a six-year-old Michigan, Michigan boy couldn't be found. That night, 80 people frantically searched the woods near his home. By morning, there was more than 300 people looking for this kid. At about 10.30, he suddenly emerged from his bedroom. He had been hiding in a large drawer underneath his captain-style bed. turned out that he hid himself because he was afraid. In the evening... Before he disappeared, a policeman had asked him if he knew anything about a broken window across the street. He lied to the officer. A little later, the officer turned on his flasher to stop a nearby motorist, and the boy saw it, and his imagination ran wild. He thought that he would be locked up in jail. Fear and guilt drove him into hiding. See, guilt over your sins, beloved, can cause you to do some pretty crazy things. It can cause you to keep a distance from the ones you love, from folks in the church, even try to hide from God. I want to tell you, if you're not in Christ this morning, 
you have a legitimate fear of judgment. You really do. But I'm here to tell you that the good news is God offers every sinner the supreme blessing that he will forgive all of your sins and credit the very righteousness of Christ to your account if you will cease from your own working for your salvation and trust in what Christ did for you on the cross. The guilt will be gone and you'll understand that supreme blessing of having your lawless deeds forgiven forever. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for this glorious forgiveness that we have through Christ and Christ alone. We thank you for our table here this morning that represents the sacrifice of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would just move and work uh, through our hearts as we partake of this table together. Lord, this table is open to all who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, if you're, if you're here today and you, you know that you're a Christian and you've trusted in Christ, we encourage you to take part in our communion time together. If you haven't, I just pray that you'd pass the elements along. No one will judge you. But this is a, a symbol of what Christ did for us. The cracker represents his body and the... the The grape juice represents his blood. And he commanded us to do this as often as we can in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. If you're here this morning, you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're just a breath away from crying out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand. Help me to trust, have faith in the work of Christ and help me to stop working for my own salvation. Lord, we ask that you would draw those hearts to yourself. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.